0: This is the Journal of American History podcast for December 2016. Matthew Garcia is the director of the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. He also directs the Comparative Border Studies program. His book, A World of Its Own, Race, Labor, and Citrus in the Making of Greater Los Angeles, 1900 to 1970, was named co-winner for the Best Book in Oral History by the Oral History Association in 2003 and received an honorable mention from the American Studies Association that same year. His book, From the Jaws of Victory, the Triumph and Tragedy of Cesar Chavez and the Farm Workers Movement explores the formation of the most successful consumer boycott in U.S. history and the grassroots activists and union leaders who created it. Uh, Matt is a recipient of a National Endowment for the Humanities grant in 2008 and the recipient of the Best Public History Award by the National Council for Public History in 2009-2010. We're talking with him today about a state of the field that uh, Matt has done for the JH on food studies that will appear in September 2016. There are respondents, Matt has a final word, it's a, a lively and uh, really wonderful state of the field. Now, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: It's my pleasure, Ed.
0: So why don't we begin with uh, a subject that you spend a good bit of, of time on and that uh, engendered interest in some of the respondents, the gap, but the importance of both popular writers on food and academic writers on food. Tell listeners a little bit about the the tensions and the promise and potential of these two fields, uh, how they relate, what are the conflicts, and so on.
1: Well, in doing the work that I do, I've always dealt with food. It comes from my family background. We were On one side of my family, they were fruit pickers. The other side worked for Sunkist, and so that drove my first book. And then the work that I've done since is really trying to unearth the the, the relationship between the people that really produce the meals that we eat and understanding how that production precipitates, I think, complex relationships. So – I've always tried to teach the subject of food, and it was actually in the teaching of the food that I found students most drawn to popular writers, uh, namely in the days that I I started teaching the subject when I was at Brown University, Michael Pollan. Initially, when I read Omnivore's Dilemma, I was um, delighted to see someone taking, uh, seemingly at that point, a kind of holistic approach from how the the food is is grown, uh, what goes into the the production of the raw materials that makes the the cuisine that we eat. Yes, there were blind spots. Yes, there were absences. But what I was most, I think, appreciative of is that my students were were motivated and captivated by the work. So when I uh, took this Revelation to um, my colleagues in the wider academic world, I found not approbation for Poland but a lot of anger and frustration and you know I saw some of those problems first of all he doesn't he's not good on labor, and that was an area of focus of mine and I tried to round it out with a lot of of attention to farm workers but what I also saw is that and I heard from other academics is that he really tried to flatten out the complexities of food consumption and the ways that it kind of affects our bodies and, and what, where are those effects coming from? Are they coming from choices that people make? And he seems to allude to that. Or are they deeper relationships with the process of production? Hmm. And so there's people like Julie Guthman that I talk about, Melanie Dupuy, who are ardent critics of of, uh, of Poland. Journalists don't necessarily uh, attest to being um, experts. Um, they are jacks of all trade, and frequently, you know, they, they sample widely and maybe um, too loosely from the sources that they draw on. And so I think that that might drive some of the problem, but I think also, frankly, and I'm not speaking specifically to Julie or to Melanie, but I, I found that there's a general kind of envy, uh, maybe jealousy <laughs> amongst academics for the popularity of people like Mark Krolansky, of um, Eric Schlosser, uh, Anthony Bourdain, uh, Matt Michael Pollan, um even people that are sort of in between the academic world and the popular world, people like Marion Nestle. I think the most cogent critique of these people at least when it comes to to Poland, for example, is that they really try to tell us how to eat and uh, prescribe more than describe. And so um, I think that that is uh, probably one of the biggest problems um, of popular food writing. And so at the end of my, my essay, you see a statement, an embrace of complex relationships as really the the current strength of food studies in academia, and I think it's the future of food studies. Um, and so what I'm trying to point out is, yes, thank you, Michael Pollan, Mark Kolansky uh, the various popular writers that have, have um, energized and excited our students and, and the, uh, the public, but um, it's more complex than that. And we, we don't find that complexity uh, typically in popular food writing. We find it in the close measured patient intellectual inquiry that we see amongst the academicians the other way in which i relate to this is through music because i've also written about popular music so i'll say briefly that when i was a grad student the great george lipsitz who is always inspirational always deeply knowledgeable about the things that he writes about um in fact i, I was in his presence this past weekend at the AHAPCB. You know, he's written about um, popular musicians such as uh, Paul Simon, for example, who through Graceland brought Sukus music to um, the public. And I always remember that when I was a grad student, he came with his book, Dangerous Crossroads, and had uh, a dinner with not just my grad peers and Vicky Ruiz, who is my mentor, but also spouses of the peers. And at what point, um, one of the spouses (laughs) locked horns with George and said, you know, don't pass judgment on Paul Simon. I think you're wrong, which, of course, we don't say that in polite company uh, (laughs) in academic circles, especially George Lipsitz. Um, George laughed at it. Um, But the point was that the spouse said, look, I wouldn't know about Suku's music if it weren't for Paul Simon and Graceland, and because of Paul Simon and Graceland, it led me to a deeper exploration of Suku's. And so he understood the kind of complexity, the rebellious nature of of the music, and I think there's a kind of similarity here with regards to uh, Poland and uh, Kurlansky and the various popular writers sure. that, in fact, they often introduce subjects um, that we... Um maybe take for granted, or we don't uh, fully realize um, that they are they are complex, and they introduce us to uh, literature that allows us to explore further and in all its ex- complexity when we explore the academic writers that really embrace the complex relationships that I think are at the heart of food history.
0: Yeah, sure so that makes that makes perfect sense. Thank you, Matt. I'm looking in, in your piece, and I'm interested in you're saying something about this. You write. I prefer to see food as geographer Rachel Slocum does. And then you quote her, By food, I mean all the processes that make animal, vegetable, or mineral into something to eat, and then all that is involved in what happens next to bodies and society. End of quote. And then your words, To do otherwise misses an opportunity to seed food in its fullest potential as an active agent in history. I mean that seems to enfranchise people from all kinds of different fields to become engaged in food studies.
1: Yes, absolutely. And here I was, um, if you if if you look at the the paragraph in the preceding census, I'm taking on the great Rachel Laudan, who is fantastic. I mean her book Cuisine and Empire is is terrific, but she makes the mistake, I believe, of discounting. What she calls the raw materials that constitute, um, you know, that go into the making of the cuisines that should be the subject of our history. I am indebted to one of our respondents, Mark Badounpat, who shared with me Rachel Slocum's quote and an article. And I think there's two things there that um, I'm I'm trying to do in this piece. One is Rachel Slocum's a geographer, so she appreciates what comes from the land, Um, she understands the relationship between uh, landscapes and and human bodies. And so um, I'm trying to make a point that all that we know and what we produce as historians should not just come from other historians and and, uh, historical approaches, that geographers, sociologists, um, various other people from other disciplines really contribute to the advancement of food studies. But the second and most important issue is that I do believe that people that are intimately involved in producing the food have to be incorporated into food history. And that comes from a personal, I guess, bias that, you know, my I come from a long line of food chain workers, we'll call them. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I worked for my father as a meat cutter. I didn't have a, a, a fellowship to go to graduate school. Hmm. Um, my fellowship was was cutting meat um, for my father. It was fifty dollars a week, and all the uh, leftover cuts of of beef that I could take home because it was either it was not going to uh, make it to the next day, I, and I understood that that labor. I also understand it from my grandmother's service as a as someone that worked in the kitchen at the Claremont Colleges. And turns out she's the longest employed employee of the Claremont Colleges at sixty three years. She just retired a couple of years ago. So I'm, I'm very um, keen to telling the story of the f- food producers that often gets left out. So that's why uh, I'm really drawn to Rachel Slocum's ideas about what constitutes food studies.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating, Matt. Thank you. Uh, and as we spoke about that, I wanted to share with you so you could talk with listeners about some of the most important categories that you use to talk about food studies. You write right toward the end of the piece— The best treatments of food explore the interactions among multiple actors and the influences of various policies and histories. These treatments at their best address the linked processes of production, consumption, and distribution. Ultimately, it is the role of the historian to embrace these complex relationships in order to illuminate new ways of thinking about our food system. So processes of production, consumption, and distribution. Could you maybe give listeners a, a mini case study of, of each and the significance of them?
1: By production, I mean simply that if you take those, those raw materials that Lauden is dismissing and you explore them and you understand how they're produced and you understand that um, it, it, it involves sacrifice by the workers and also sacrificed by the earth. Um, I think the production part of it is very important. The consumption is really where the heart of, I think, food studies in the past has been. That's focused on cuisine, but I think also today we're thinking more about our bodies, and we're thinking about the ways in which uh, we consume obesogens through our consumption of Corn, for example, um, the way that Julie Gussman talks about these issues. So Mm -hmm. consumption is now more than cuisine, but it's also um, health. And finally, distribution. I mean, distribution is really important when we think about the fact that a lot of food in the United States we eat, or at least the vegetables, they're coming from south of the border. Uh, So tomatoes, for example, over 50% of the tomatoes we consume today are produced in Mexico, um, there's a whole set of relationships that make that possible, not the least of which are free trade agreements, such as NAFTA. Um, and so what are the consequences of that kind of distribution? Oftentimes we see those as maybe negative, because as recently as a couple of years ago, we found that those tomatoes that are produced in Mexico and are sold in places like Walmart or even Whole Foods were produced literally by slave labor in Mexico. Hmm. On the other hand, Robert Alvarez's book that I profile in this article, I think it's a wonderful book in that it doesn't necessarily point to the negative consequences of uh, free trade, the movement of production across the border. We we often associate that with a, a negative outcome. There are positives to it. First of all, uh, we see the empowerment of food traders in you know wholesale markets in Los Angeles, which I'm familiar with by going there with my father when he owned the, the, the meat uh, shop, um, and they became much more players in the f- distribution of food, um, and they were able to you know provide for their families, and um, that was a new opportunity for uh, a largely disenfranchised uh, community. The second is that we get new food sources in North America. So, for example, they talk about the mango and how by producing it in Mexico, by uh, having this relationship between Los Angeles and Mexico, we're seeing new cuisine getting created through uh, the movement of food and people across that border. Mm. So I think that it's a, a complex relationship. And it's not always a good or bad outcome. And I think one of the things that's really uh, beneficial to the new food stu- studies, the ones that are profiled towards the end of the piece, people like Melanie Dupuy, Robert Alvarez, Julie Gussman, as they try to uh, avoid good, bad, positive, negative interpretations of our food system and the consequences of our food system. Popular food writers are very prone to pinning things in positive, uh, negative, good, bad, um, by their prescriptive writing, um, by trying to tell us what to eat, what not to eat, what's good production, what's bad production. You
0: write also here, the story of a single fruit or vegetable has been a popular approach for food historians, often focused on a crisis related to its production or future. And a little further down, I have found the story of bananas, the Most Effective Way to Convey the Unique Intersection of Agriculture, Business, Environmental, and Diplomatic History to My Students Over the Years. Uh, tell listeners a little bit uh, uh, about how you, how you do the biography of bananas in this complex set of categories.
1: Well, I think that the future of the Cavendish, um, the kind of banana that we eat today, um, and the disease that's uh, attacking it, is a compelling reason to, to read the story of bananas and to know that the Gros Michel uh, was another strain of banana was eliminated um, before it. Um, I think that what we see through this is that, um, one, uh, there's dangers in monoculture. So the monoculture of one strain of, of banana, one strain of any kind of fruit or, or vegetable, leads to uh, vulnerabilities uh, I think there's transportable lessons, um, to other products. The second is that, you know, you see the consequences of, uh, U.S. colonialism. Some would call it neocolonialism, but the ways in which the United Fruit Company took over large tracts of land, um, throughout Central America and South America to produce these bananas. And they become the sole engine or economic source for these, these nations. That lead to the kind of influence that United Fruit had in the during the Cold War in the 1950s when they didn't like the the policies of a, of a new government, uh, Jacobo Arbenz, and that and he was a democratically elected president of Guatemala, and so they encouraged and supported uh, and facilitated a CIA coup against a democratically elected uh, government. Um so that's compelling stuff. There's a lot to learn from that. I'm personally invested in it because um while you know the history of United Fruit is uh pretty dark from 1954 to 1975, um, there's little known about United Fruit. Um there are some studies, but I'm curious how United Fruit came to its end and what it was doing in the 1960s and 1970s. And it turns out it was led by an immigrant, Eli Black. He's from Poland, came to New York in 1925. And his story is fascinating. Um, By the time he takes over United Fruit as a part of a a larger company that he calls United Brands in 1969, 1970, he's actually trying to bring a social consciousness to business and to improve wages there six times the going rate of other producers, such as Standard uh, uh, Fruit, that's his competitor. He's enabling them to buy their own homes. Uh, He's also, as a part of United Brands, agreeing to contracts with the United Farm Workers and striking a friendship with Cesar Chavez. So this is a very different United Fruit And I think that food in some ways and the banana is an entry point. Although I understand, for example, Mark Padunkat has a kind of criticism of of using food as an entree to other topics. But for me, I, I think it's a very interesting entree. And this is one I'm pursuing right now in a biography, not just of a banana, um, I'm, I'm branching out to do um, a biography of a company and a man, Eli Black.
0: That's fascinating, Matt. Thank you. And certainly other gateways to large subjects through food could, as you write about, rice and sugar for historians of uh, of slavery and issues of ethnic identity for immigration historians.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I talk about them. Sydney Mintz for example, on sugar, Daniel Littlefield on rice. Uh, those are just a couple foods, a couple scholars. But, you know, I think that they've been really, really productive in exploring other subjects uh, that are related to the production, consumption, and distribution of food.
0: Matt, how do historians who engage the senses factor into the the study of food? i I was thinking a lot as I read your piece about the special section we did in the JAH a number of years ago on the senses in American history that uh, Mark Smith at South Carolina was the guest editor for that and of course Mark has written such brilliant stuff on on the senses but issues of taste issues of smell uh, that have to do with uh, with class and with ethnicity and all kinds of interesting things do you see people who focus on taste and smell as part of the world of, of food studies or is it a kind of related related field?
1: I think it is a part of food studies. It's definitely been a part of popular food studies. So like Michael Crondall has done, uh, written a book called The Taste of Conquest. Um, we have people like Gary Navim, who is You know, he's got one foot in academia, one foot in popular uh, writing. Um, He's down at the University of Arizona, but he's written books on on, um, cumin, for example, and and the flavor. You know, for me, for my taste, she comes up in the response. I think it's Monica Perales, who cites Meredith Abarca, who's written a great book called Voices from the Kitchen. And I, I consider this a kind of academic treatment of taste. And she's part of a book that I'm going to be publishing with Melanie Dupuis and Don Mitchell called Food Across Borders. And basically what she's arguing is that we can track the history of food, the history of slavery, the history of migration through the various cuisines uh, or various uh, flavors that constitute the Mexican palate. Um, So she has a wonderful piece in our book that's forthcoming about uh, comotes. And comotes are a sweet potato that really were a a product of of slave culture in Mexico. Now, Mexico prides itself on being uh, really a mestizo country, in some ways simplistically limited to the mixture of Spanish and Indian uh, peoples. Uh, But the comote disrupts that, and the evidence is You know, the sweetness that's in the food is a product of the slave culture and and the Komote she traces back to Africa. So how do we know? Well, you know, there is some evidence, of course, plenty of evidence of slavery reaching Mexico and the wonderful book by Carl Jacoby recently on uh, William Ellis uh, proves that what Meredith Abarca is saying is that we can we can see this history we can even taste this history more Mm -hmm. importantly to your point Mm -hmm. we can taste it in the foods that we consume that have the presence of Africa in Mexican cuisine so I'm proud to call her a friend Uh, power, you know, contributed to that book that I mentioned. And I'm inspired by her book um, Voices in the Kitchen.
0: So Matt, uh, as we conclude, you've mentioned uh, a number of times issues from the different responses that accompany your piece in the JAH. Uh, Were there any that uh, issues that arose from these interesting responses that you found particularly fascinating that have stayed with you to think about?
1: Yeah, there's two, in fact. Although all of them were so thoughtful, um, I, I really appreciate that they took up my challenge to expand food studies beyond cuisine, embrace labor, agriculture. But the two that really uh, stuck with me and I've thought a lot about them is Mark Padunthat's challenge to think about whether food is just an entree to other subjects or does it have intrinsic value. That's the first one. And the second is, <laughs> I would say, Melanie Dupuis refusal of a mine with the popular f- uh, food writers. Uh-huh. Um, I enjoyed it. It's, an, it's entertaining and it's not surprising with Melanie because Melanie and I have been friends and, and now we're co-authors for a long time. And I've known Mark for a long time as well. So it doesn't surprise me that they would challenge me. I think on the point of entree, I, I, I think I said this earlier when I was talking about bananas, I'm not worried about controlling the reception Um, If people uh, are led to new topics through food, so be it. I'm fine with that. Do I think food has intrinsic value? Uh, Absolutely. Um, And I think um, in some ways I signal that in my recent book about um, the boycott, the the great boycott with United Farm Workers. I think it's important that a boycott against food um, hinges on the value of it being food it's perishable. It 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 can't sit on the shelf forever. It's not a shirt, for example, where you could go if you don't if you want to boycott Nike, you can go buy an Adidas shirt, or if you don't like Adidas, then you can go buy a Brooks shirt. Um, no, you know it perishes at some point. And the United Farm Workers used the intrinsic value of food to really leverage their position and win uh, concessions for for food workers, for farm workers. So. Yeah, I think that food oftentimes has that kind of intrinsic value. I'm not sure that that's what Mark's talking about, but um, I don't see it as an entree in my book to labor history. I actually see the grape being a very important uh, subject for the book itself. Yeah, and and then the other is uh, that I think it's interesting that that Melanie doesn't want to um, give Poland and every at all any credit, but it's funny that you know, her work depends so greatly on the simplistic ideas that these food writers produce. And my favorite rebuttal really to Melanie is um, Madeline Sue's piece on Bittman. Bittman, who she points out, you know, is, rife with all kinds of um, problems in his interpretation of Chinese food. But Bittman, if you look at him more broadly, is doing wonderful thing on on food chain workers, for example, on the health of the seas as a consequence of our uh, seafood intake. So it's a mixed bag, and I think it's dangerous to just say – Never, never, never will I have anything to do or, or or appreciate popular food writers. In fact, Melanie implicitly appreciates food writers, popular food writers, in her critique of them. In many ways, her scholarship would not be possible without acknowledging all the wrong-headed advice that's been given to us um, through the ages from popular food writers. So. I take that as a a nice, uh, gentle response to her response, and we will continue the debate, I'm sure, for years to come.
0: (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Now, we have been talking today with Professor Matthew Garcia, the director of the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. Matt also directs a comparative border studies program and in the September 2016 issue of the Journal of American History has written a state of the field on food studies. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to do this podcast with us.
1: It's been a real pleasure and honor. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for listening to the Journal
0: of American History podcast. Please join us in March 2017 for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org.